DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow, with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co-authored with Cardinal Donald Worrell, and The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow, the book on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn, eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. It's great to be back, Chris. I'm excited about this particular look in history as we visit Chapter 6 in the book, recounting the Reformation inside and out. And I'm looking forward to having you help me to understand Martin Luther. It's not a remote historical or academic question we're dealing with here because we're still very much living in the aftermath of the Reformation. We're, we're living with those sad divisions in Christendom, and, and they're in our very neighborhoods. They're in our families. As a result of the Protestant Reformation, we have so many divisions in Christianity. We have so many denominations of Christian and, and a strong sense that we, we should belong together. And now we have to try to find our way to, uh, to recover that unity. An important part of recovering the unity is understanding what happened at the beginning, and that's a difficult and painful process. I've always thought it kind of sad that he would come from the Augustinian order, that from the, the great St. Augustine, there would come from that particular order someone who would feel such a, dare I say, a disconnect? Well, Martin Luther was a troubled soul, and even even the circumstances of his calling to the Augustinian life were, were troubled. He was someone who was tormented by his own personal sense of sin. You know, the story goes that he was, um, he was caught in a, a, a violent lightning storm, and he promised God he would become a monk if he survived. Uh, as the the lightning bolts fell all around and and he survived and he entered the order but he had a lot of discontent in his life uh, a strong sense of his own sinfulness and eventually he found peace in the notion that we can't get there we can't get salvation based on our own efforts which is an orthodox notion and that we're saved by our faith in God again an orthodox notion Mm -hmm. this might not have happened um, if, if his inner turmoil hadn't coincided with some turmoil going on in society. At the time, there was a lot of political unrest in Germany and a lot of uncertainty about about which way the empire would go. Also, at the time, the Pope was concerned with the uh, the renovation of St. Peter's, and he wanted it to be a glorious church. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he encouraged preachers to raise money for the for the refurbishing of of St. Peter's, the rebuilding of St. Peter's, really. And uh, some of them got a little too zealous, and they strongly suggested that you could you could spring your family members from purgatory if you just plunked down the money for the, for the renovation of St. Peter's. And Luther was horrified by this, and rightly so. You know, if, if they were indeed strongly suggesting that, then they were, they were uh, doing something that was wrong. The year is 1506, and of course we're talking about Pope Julius II. And mm-hmm. when we talk about indulgences, Mike, we're not necessarily the indulgences that the Pope was authorizing. It did get 
twisted by those wandering preachers. Yes, and anytime you preach, you're simplifying. You're trying to communicate something. So sometimes the wandering preachers were not theologians, and, and the people they were preaching to were certainly not theologians. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy for things to get miscommunicated, and sometimes it's the fault of the preacher, sometimes it's the fault of the congregation, and sometimes it's just these circumstances. But properly speaking, an indulgence removes the temporal punishment of a sin that has already been forgiven. So it, it assumes that you've already gone through the, the normal channels uh, to seek forgiveness. Um, and what it does is it just removes that temporal punishment that's due to the sin. But again, when we're popularizing these ideas, sometimes we um, cut corners and uh, sometimes we miscommunicate on the, on the speaking end. And, and sometimes the people who are listening don't hear exactly what we're saying. We've all had the experience of this, even in family life, never mind on the radio, but, right. but it happens. Absolutely. And when this type of miscommunication or this type of disconnect occurs with what is being said and what's being understood, I guess perception is reality for so many people, that sure. uh, it can cause anger. It can create a firestorm in the life of either a family, but in this case, it created a firestorm within this particular locality in the church where Luther was at. That's right. And he, on October 31st in 1517, he nailed up 95 theses, statements that he wanted to be publicly debated. And they were all over the map, really. There were 95 of them, and they, they ranged. Some of them were orthodox, some were heretical, some were dubious, but all of them were inflammatory. And soon all of Germany and a, a lot of the rest of the continent was talking about about Martin Luther and his theses. And again, this coincided with a few things. One is the printing press. All of a sudden, you could put these things in a pamphlet form. You could put them in a handbill form. You could put them in a form that could be nailed on every door in a neighborhood. And that's what happened. This was the first time that these ideas, heretical ideas really, were able to be spread like wildfire through the countryside. And eventually this would work against Luther too, because other sects would, would take issue with what he was saying and want to take the deviation from Christian tradition even further, and they would use the same means that Luther used. Well, the church didn't condemn Luther right away, correct? That's right. Well, actually, the Pope wanted to bide his time because he, he did not want to, to lose the opportunity to keep a unified Europe, and he, he had high hopes for the guy he thought would be elected emperor in Germany, and that guy showed some interest in Luther. So the Pope wanted to keep things together, and, uh, and he bided his time, and there was a lot of discussion going on. You know, eventually when the Pope did call a council, Luther refused to go. He refused to go. By that, by that time, he had, drawn, he had drawn his line in the sand, and he had separated himself from the tradition. What's interesting about Luther, you know, he preached sola scriptura, scripture alone, and didn't take the tradition of scriptural interpretation into consideration. You know, he, he thought that was of minimal value. Though he was willing to quote the fathers of the church, for example, on occasion, he, he didn't think that they had a strong authority. The, the Catholic Church, on the other hand, has always said that when there's a consensus of the fathers in reading the scripture, uh, then we must hold to what the fathers teach. Well, Luther, Luther didn't see any authority there, and he was willing to go against the consensus of the fathers, and he acknowledged that. He was willing to, uh, to go against what Christians of all time had believed about the gospel up to that point. And again, he, he thought he was doing this for right reasons, but again, it opened the door for countless 
sects to do the same in the later decades of his life. It doesn't surprise me that there's a political element that's involved in all this, because when you look at Luther's relationship with Frederick, who would end up becoming the leader in this area, it takes on a very dramatic and very violent form, doesn't it? It does. You know, Luther himself would come to repudiate his monastic vows, and he took a former nun as his wife. And really, it he encouraged others to do the same. And in some places, you find mobs of men raiding convents and, and so-called liberating the nuns for marriage. And again, Luther publicly applauded the princes who employed violent means to enforce his heresy. We're not talking about the promotion of tolerance here against intolerance. This is just intolerance all around. Luther was such a forceful and passionate preacher, and um, his preaching is often marked by anger that uh, many people would hear him and then hear his words as a summons to arms. And uh, St. Thomas More has a very moving description of when um, a Lutheran mob actually sacked Rome in 1527, uh, and it's it's a horrible thing. You know, they, they went in and they, they desecrated churches, they raped women, and they tortured men, women, and children in the city before going back to Germany. And all of this came as a result of his, his preaching. So when we find people using the rhetoric of liberation to describe what happened in those years, those early years of the Reformation, it's just not true. If there was intolerance on the Catholic side, it was just mirrored in the intolerance on the other side, and eventually that became codified in the law in these lands so that it didn't create conditions for freedom of religion in Europe. What it did was it instituted the custom of everyone following the religion of the prince, whoever the prince happened to be. So in Protestant lands, if you, you know, if you had a Protestant prince, it would be a Protestant land, and everyone had to follow the, the religion of the prince. And mm-hmm. if it was a Catholic land, same thing. You know, you'd have to follow the religion of your prince and be Catholic. So this wasn't a liberation in any sense. It, it really took a, took away any transnational authority, the, like the Pope, uh, who could who could guarantee a certain degree of liberty. It really created the conditions of possibility for even greater tyrannies several centuries down the road. Oh, the loss of authority and that tradition, those anchors, anarchy can take hold in particularly a religious expression. And we see that with Luther because even his doctrines were growing more heretical. And the fact that even at one point, I don't know if people realize this, that he approved of a polygamous relationship for a nobleman. And that's startling, isn't it? It is. And what happened was that Luther declared the pope to be the Antichrist, but then he he really did set himself up as a pope. He could be the arbiter of these decisions in faith and morals. As when uh, when a prince wants to wants to take a second wife because he's tired of the first. So what we find is that is that a prince like that could really cause humiliation and pain to that first wife and 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 an illicit situation there. And Luther's going to wink at it because it's politically expedient. But at the same time, he recognizes that you have to draw the line somewhere. And so when the Anabaptist movement arose and declared themselves to be pacifists, for example, and uh, and really opposed his doctrine of infant baptism, he drew the line there, and he encouraged the princes to put down such revolt and rebellion uh, in a bloody way, uh, with violence. And so we find that, that, that again, he's acting like a pope. He, he recognizes that you have to draw the line somewhere, and someone has to draw the line. 
the words of scripture are not transparent to to everyone they depend a lot on the interpreter and as a result we we you know today we have we have so many different denominations of christianity each of them opposed to all of the others and all of them claiming the scripture as their rule we'll continue with the resilient church with mike aquilina in just a moment Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission and if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. The Confidier. I confess to Almighty God, and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned, in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do. Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore I ask Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. We now return to The Resilient Church with Mike Aquilina. Those leaders who would take the authority away from the church and place it on their own shoulders to potentially further their own causes or their own agendas. And I'm speaking probably more pointingly about King Henry VIII. Well, certainly. King Henry VIII was someone in England who believed that uh, that he had Catholic sensibilities, and he, he had even written against Luther. He had written a great defense of the se- seven sacraments, and for that service, he was given the title Defender of the Faith. And if you look on British coins, you'll still see that title, D- Defensor Fidei, Defender of the Faith. So it's something that the monarchy has always prized, that they were declared defenders of the faith by the Pope. And Henry VIII himself was proud of that. He was an intelligent man. He was having some difficulty because his wife, Catherine of Aragon, was not producing a male heir who could survive past infancy. And at the same time, he was increasingly attracted to young Anne Boleyn, who was uh, you know, in his court. And he wanted to divorce Catherine. He wanted the marriage annulled. And the Pope just did not see any grounds for annulment there. And and Henry argued his case, and the Pope was not budging. And so Henry had himself declared supreme ruler of the Church of England. And even though he still considered himself Catholic and and opposed the Lutheran reforms, what he wanted was autonomy. He wanted to be a law unto himself. He wanted to be able to adjudicate matters in his own life. 
And as we can see, it just led to chaos in the country. The clergy were required to swear an oath of fidelity, and so was Parliament. They had to recognize Henry as having those papal powers. So you have to have a pope. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's what it comes down to. If you're going to have a church, you're going to find your pope. And uh, sometimes right. you just do it at the local level, as uh, as in, in some of the Congregationalist churches that arose later on. But these popes arise. I have a friend who's an Anabaptist, and he often says that at the time of the Reformation, his people thought they were getting rid of the pope, but they ended up getting 12,000 popes in, in, in mm-hmm. return. <laughs> oh. How true, because you're looking for leadership, and, you know, our, our blessed Lord knew that, and that's why he established the church as he did. That's right, and the Bible is not a self-interpreting document, so you're going to find opposing interpretations, and someone has to adjudicate these. Someone has to has to say that this is the right way for Christians to go, and this is the wrong way, and Someone will seize that authority if you're not going to recognize the legitimate authority. And we find that with Henry. Henry's revolution, really, against the church became very violent very soon. He was opposed by the monks. Even though the bishops tended to cave in in England, the monks did not. And so Henry just took their lands. He took the monasteries and he turned them over to the nobles. And this won him the favor of the nobles who were happy to have these these vast lands and these beautiful ancient monasteries as their homes. So Henry, um, Henry gained a lot of favor among the rich and made some martyrs of the monks. And he continued this way, as we know. He went through six wives, and he left a male son who, who didn't get too far, and uh, he left a lot of chaos in the years afterwards as the, the Church of England tried to find its form, which eventually became just a form of compromise. Hmm. Interestingly enough, he retained the traditional Catholic devotions and liturgies. He did, and he, he wanted to. And, and, of course, that strain has has run through the Anglican Church uh, since the beginning. We find that the Anglo-Catholics have always held on to the uh, the pre-Reformation, Sarum liturgy in English, and, and when they do come back to the Church today, they bring the liturgy with them only in a, in a revised form to make it valid as a Catholic liturgy. Not long ago, I, I went to a, a Mass in Scranton, Pennsylvania, according to the Anglican use, hmm. because an entire parish, an entire Anglican parish, had come into the church with their pastor, and he was ordained as a Catholic priest. So it is the old Sarum rite um, from before the Reformation, but it's been, it's been altered to include um, uh, some of the Roman canon and to be a valid Catholic liturgy today. And I do think it bears at least a bit of mention the fact that when Henry died and then his son Edward died shortly after his death, it left his daughter Mary, who was a Catholic, she came in, uh, tried to bring the church back, but did it in a very unfortunate, violent manner. But mm-hmm. when we hear about that, she's got the tag now uh, throughout history as Bloody Mary, However, the same type of violence was used by her sister Elizabeth to yank the people back to that former religion that her father established, and and it was no less bloody. That's right. I I tell the story in in the book of John Nelson, a Jesuit priest who refused to take Elizabeth's oath of supremacy, and he was drawn on a hurdle from Newgate to Tyburn. Mm. Now, I don't know what the distance is there, <laughs> but just imagine uh, being drawn on a gate from uh, one town to another 
and there he was hanged, disemboweled, and quartered. Mm. And, and, you know, they tried to, to keep them alive for as much of this as possible. And such gruesome executions were, were fairly routine uh, back then, and they continued for some time. It's estimated that, that more than 600 men and women died as martyrs for the Catholic faith in post-Reformation England. So, yes, you know, we have the, the, the reputation of Bloody Mary, but really her Protestant successors were no less bloody. It really is a statement about the advance of a political agenda more so than the proclamation of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And it's a return to that gospel that we all hold in common that will bring us all back again, I think. Our Lord prayed for unity in the prayer at the Last Supper, that great prayer that that all may be one. And we have to believe that the Father will answer his prayer and give us the graces we need to return to to unity. We're receiving those graces now. I I mean, I I saw that, those graces, in action when I attended that that Anglican Youth Mass in, in Scranton. And I believe we're going to see a lot more of that coming to fruition in the years ahead. Well, we would be remiss if we didn't mention a Reformation leader who has left his mark on Protestantism, of course, John Calvin. That's right. And he, too, was was a fairly repressive leader. He set himself up in, in Geneva, Switzerland, of course, and set it up as a, as a Calvinist state, as a state that was built on Reformation principles. He was more of a systematic thinker than Luther. He really did find certain things in Luther, certain doctrines that were there, and emphasized them to a far greater degree, like the, the doctrine of, of predestination. He wrote, for example, that um, Scripture clearly proves that God, by his eternal and immutable counsel, determined once for all those whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation and those whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. Okay. We maintain that this counsel, as regards the elect, is founded on his free mercy without any respect to human worth while those whom he dooms to destruction are excluded from access to life by a just and blameless, but at the same time incomprehensible judgment. So essentially he eliminated all human freedom, all human correspondence with God's will, and uh, eliminated free will from the human story, the human drama. Yeah, a very sad type of doctrine, I think, because it, it where's hope in all of that? That's right. Well, when we talk about hope, that's that, you know, not only do we have the grace that that flows from the blood of the martyrs of that time and in northern in the northern parts of Europe, but we also have that great a refuge of Catholic Spain, which uh, brought us the great reformers, a man and a woman who uh, just really is we still feel the effect of their mission today, don't we? I assume you're talking about St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. But even before them, we find great things happening in Spain. Of course, Spain had been under Muslim domination for so long and had only very recently, in 1492, recovered itself as an independent nation and kingdom and as a Christian kingdom. So they were, they were you know, feeling that, um, that sense of elation, really, coming into their own once again. And at the same time, you know, they had a strong sense of how vulnerable it all was because they had lived under the domination of an alien religion, and they did not want that to happen again. So even before Teresa and John, we, we find figures like Cisneros, Cardinal Cisneros, who really enacted the authentic reforms of the Reformation in Spain so that 
the the Reformation ideas, the German ideas, really never took hold in Spain. There there was no reason for them. Cardinal Cisneros had already begun the great translation of the Bible into the vernacular, and he was setting up all kinds of scholarship for critical editions of the Bible, and it was an exciting time. He so thoroughly reformed the Franciscan order, uh, and it was so badly in need of reform that many of the Franciscans in his land couldn't live under his rule, and they, they ran away with their concubines and converted to Islam in Africa. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, so, so you see that, that he just made it intolerable for people who were not going to live up to the demands of the Christian faith, especially those who were in authority over other Christians, especially those who, who had holy orders. He was not going to put up with it. So you have in Spain conditions for a genuine Catholic Reformation taking place. And also the the great work of, it, as we mentioned, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, but right. we cannot not mention Ignatius of Loyola and that great uh-huh. mission to go out and teach the faith. That's right. That's right. And with such devotion to the Holy Father and such discipline on the, the soldiers who were in his company, and he really did see it as, a, as an almost military undertaking, not that they took up arms, but Ignatius himself had a military background. He was a soldier. He had been wounded in battle when he underwent his great conversion and his call to live a life of service. And so he founded the Society of Jesus, and he drew men to him who had the same spirit and were willing to undergo the same military discipline, the same life of renunciation that he did. And they put such great, great gifts at the service of the church and at the service of the Pope that they were able to gain so many of, of these hearts and, and gain many of the lands um, back to the Catholic faith when, when they were in danger. Ignatius was a great figure in history, and of course the Society of Jesus remains a great force for good in the world. Well, that spreading the gospel to the new world will be the uh, subject of our next discussion. I just wish we had more time, Mike. Any final thoughts on this particular section? Well, I think that when we look back on these times, we have to look at them as a spur to prayer. And we have to look around us at the divisions in the church and, and imagine what we could accomplish if we were one, if Christians were one as Christ prayed we should be one. And we know, again, that the Father will give the graces, will send us the Spirit, and, and the Spirit will make us one. Right now, I think the divisions in Christianity are a scandal to non-Christians, and we have to actively pray for that unity. Not all of us are theologians. Not all of us are, are uh, church administrators or, or church authorities. So we can't always take an active part, but we can always be friends with our neighbors, and we can always use that friendship as a, as a means of, of increased understanding and reconciliation among Christians. Again, we can't do this on an international level, maybe, but we can do it in the neighborhood, and from there, it, it'll spread. Thank you, Mike Aquilina. Well, thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel it's worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. 
But most of all, we ask that you tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilino.